Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dial the gate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Sorry, guys. I just realized I was muted. Thank you very much for that. Okay. <laughs> That's my fault. You're making my mistakes. Yeah, see, Joe, Joe's got my back. All right, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. I knew it was going to happen sooner or later. Let me back up for a second. Welcome to uh, episode four of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Uh, I've got Joe Flanagan here waiting in the wings. Thanks so much for everyone in the chat for pointing out that I have no sound. Um, but uh, we should be broadcasting right now. There we go. Uh, thank you for everyone who's online already. We're at 243 guests and uh, counting. So what's uh, first going to happen here is that I'm going to bring Joe in. I'm going to have a line of questioning for him. It sounds like an interrogation, but it's not. Trust me. Uh, and then uh, we're going to invite the fan community to ask questions of their own. And then, uh, yeah, we'll see where it goes. One of the things that we must keep in mind yesterday with 150 people simultaneously in the chat is that not everyone got to get their questions asked. And we're going to fix that with this one as best we can by inviting everyone to only ask one question. So make it good. So when you post it in the chat, one question, and then that's the last that the moderators are going to take from you. Thank you to Summer and thank you to Tracy for being online right now to take care of that. Without further ado, let's bring in the man of the hour himself, Mr. Joe Flanagan, sir. How are you? Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you dealing with this quarantine? I mean, you be the judge of yourself. Yeah. I, you know, I showed up unshaven. <laughs> I, yeah. I Listen, it, it is, I'm not going to lie to you. It's far more difficult than I thought. And what occurred to me, and, and Jason and I both kind of realized, is like, we are, we're not really adults. We're in adult bodies, but we're just children that are, you know, with ADD. We're like restless children with ADD. So locking us in a confined space is, is well, it's, it's not advisable. It's a, a dangerous, maybe. Jeez. <laughs> so. oh, yeah, you got to keep yourself occupied with toys and, you know, taking interviews and, and whatever else that you can do, you know, while you're just, just dealing with the with the madness that is the, the current reality. How, how long have you been in confinement for, for C? Today's number day 10. Yeah. So what I've been doing, like these type of things help like a little like window into the world where there's human beings doing things. But um, uh, 
you know, I've been doing a, a live stream every day at 2 p.m. East Coast time just to reach out. And I thought it would be I thought it would be entertaining to see just like the portrait of a man slowly unraveling. Um, and so people will, you know, it might be like watching a car crash. Who knows? Uh, In but, gradual slow motion. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's been helping me stay sane. Okay. Uh, but other than that, you know, I want to say that this is excessive, but then I'm not a medical expert. And, and, you know, when I talk to people who do know what they're talking about, you know, I, we I don't I know, you know, and yeah. if we don't know, what's wrong with taking a few precautions? So, I mean, if, if you're willing to do the work, I'm just so thankful that production has restarted in so many places, you know, and that we're trying to find a happy medium to to make it work. Well, um, that's exactly right. Because when I said to the lady here in production, I said, God, 14 day quarantine, that seems obsessive. She said, excessive. She said, well, you know, we're working. I mean, you guys aren't really working down there. Yeah. So whatever allows us to work. And I, I couldn't argue that. Yeah, I couldn't argue that that's that's true. I've been speaking with a number of your peers uh, getting ready to start this. And yeah. you've, you've got people all across the spectrum. I'm you know, I want to work, but I'm having trouble finding work. In your case, you know, we're working, but there's uh, there's a holding pattern. And then others are like, I just don't think it's safe right now. And so. We're we're all trying to hindsight's twenty twenty. You know we're going to be looking back on these few years, right? Studied years for for years and years. But yeah. I mean, where we're at right now, everyone's got to be smart, follow their doctor's instructions based on their own health, right. and do the best that they can with the information that they've been given. So yeah. Hey, listen, I thought that this pandemic was going to be the unifying element that made us realize we were all in the same boat together and and how wrong was i i didn't realize it would be politicized and everybody's gonna start questioning the science and stuff so that's a little unfortunate and uh but this thing is going to go on until springtime, so maybe we'll recalibrate and realize that we are all in it together, so who knows. Hope, I, I completely hope that that's the case. So yeah. tell us about uh, C. So you're, you're, uh, you're gonna, in day 10 of 14. Um, how long is production for you, and uh, what can you I, tell us? I have been told that I can't tell anybody about anything on C. So I, like, really apologize. Okay. But uh, so, I mean, they're very tight lipped about this and you have to sign, you know, non-disclosure agreements and stuff like that. So I can't really talk about it, but basically I did a couple episodes before the quarantine and this is just picking up where that left off. So you've already been on the show. I have not seen it yet. Well, I, I have started on their season two, season but two. I, I don't know when they give season two out. Got it. I have no, I think they save it all, get it shot, get it in the can and then release it. But, um, so, you know, I'll be doing, uh, a, you know, a few more episodes for the, they only shoot six episodes a season and I do a few more and then maybe a few more for season three. That's about it. Do you like the role? Yeah, it's fun. No, it's no, David, I hate the role. I just do it to be, to get a paycheck and to spend time with my yeah. buddy. So. Well, I tell you, it is interesting. I, I can probably talk about this, which is you have to go through sensory training because everybody's blind and so you realize that your cues are always audible they're they're auditory so you turn and you look at things so you have to train yourself to um or or they're they're visual but you have to train yourself to 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 turn to auditory cues only and be like you know like you're hearing things and stuff so 
I spent the day with this one guy who's blind and we went walking around. He had to put a thing on you and you go walking around with him. And it's, it's fascinating. What's fascinating is how they use the sensory elements that they have with such greater precision than we do. You mean the blind? He, yeah. He yeah. can walk into a room and by tapping, he can kind of tell how big it is. Just by the, the echo and stuff. You can kind of get a feel for like the thing. And it, it's amazing that um, what we, we, we rely really heavily on the senses that come easily to us. So we're not very auditory. We're more visual. That's crazy. So yeah. there, how, how has it been to, to share this, uh, the stage, as it were, with Jason again? Jason and I actually, weirdly enough, haven't worked together yet. Really? That no, that has not happened yet, which is, I think, kind of interesting. Okay. So it's a bigger palette than just him and what he's seeing. And, you know, I, I haven't seen season one. So yeah. what, what, what do you think of the show? I, well, I like the show. It's a big production. It's really amazing and impressive. And um, I recommend anybody, you know, get, I think, get through the first two or three episodes because it really gets going. Um, and after like two or three episodes, you, you get hooked. And it's a, you know, it's a big, epic adventure. Um, so, yeah, you should check it out. Leave and, it to Apple know. to produce you know, some, some top-notch quali- quality content. So I wouldn't have expected otherwise. Yeah, they, they, they have the pockets to put into production value. Did so. you know that Apple was interested in acquiring SG-1 for a season 11? I did not know that. Yeah, before Arc of Truth, they were they were considering uh, picking it up. So before Arc of Truth and Continuum, well, that was before they really launched out. Exactly, that's right. That was uh, ten years ago, something yeah, like that. That was before so. they even had a platform. So that's yeah. kind of interesting. I wonder how they would have done that. So with this show, with Dial the Gate, my intention yeah. here is to be the archive of American television for Stargate. We're on YouTube. You know, this is uh, humanity's. Uh, visual record, you know, probably for the next multiple decades. As new fans discover the show, I want to create a space for them to come to see the, the oral history, to watch people discuss episodes from the entire franchise from all aspects of production. So that's my intent here. So my hope is that after we're finished with this episode, a few months down the line, you'd be willing to come back and talk about uh, a few more episodes from the show going through the series. So I really appreciate you being here. Happy to. Happy to be a service. Did you always know that you... But let's take a step back before Stargate. Let's let's specifically focus on you. And I want to focus on the people that made you who you are, your personal heroes, and the people who inspired you to become the guy that you are. But did you always know that you wanted to act? No. Not at all. Acting came uh, almost by accident. Uh, So it was interesting. I was... Uh, I worked, some people know this, but I worked in, um, it's a backwards trajectory where most people kind of grow up and work harder. I actually started working hard and was disciplined. And I was like, till I finally ended up in Hollywood. What did you do? Well, I was pretty disciplined. So each summer I was like, really, I I grew up on this, this, this ranch farm, like environment. And we did a lot of manual labor and stuff. Like we were outdoors all the time. And, 
and I went away to school and so forth, but I spent the summers um, doing internships. So I worked at Dean Witter Reynolds. I worked at Wells Fargo. I worked in, um, uh, ah, I apologize. You're fine. I thought Don't this was turned it. off. Yeah, welcome to my life. I thought, I thought it, was, it turned was turned on. Off. I'm trying to figure out I should have a kid blocker because it's my kids who always call. <laughs> and I know what they want. They want money. <laughs> they always want money. Hey, dad, you want money? They're like, no, I just called to say hi. Oh, sure. Can I borrow $50? Yeah. So um, <laughs> anyway, anyways, um, they, uh, I, I worked in Wells Fargo and then I worked at, in, in Washington, D.C. as an intern. And it kind of culminated in a job that was pretty interesting, uh, short-lived, but interesting, which was I was an advanced man for George Bush Sr. An advanced man is somebody who goes out and organizes trips. So uh, if George Bush was going to um, Los Angeles or London mm. or whatever, you go in advance, maybe a week, maybe three days, you get everything organized so that when his plane lands, you then steer him through the entire process and you work the schedule out by like literally by 30 second increments. It's, yeah. it's an incredible logistical. Like, so you machine. had to have worked a little bit with Secret Service then. Oh, we did. We had, uh, Secret Service worked for us, which is like a source of occasional tension because, you know, Secret Service has their own manifest that they have to deal with, which is protect the president. But then some of us were like, look, this is a great backdrop. He can speak here. And, and then this is going to make a great freight front page. You know, you got the president there, you got a flag, you got the, the buildings in the background and they're, you know, secret service will come up and say, yeah, well, you can get sniper fire from here, sniper fire from there, sniper from there. And you're like, yeah, but I can't keep them in a box. And they said, okay, just remember that when he gets shot, it's on your head. <laughs> That's a little heavy. Hmm. So, maybe, uh, maybe we can so work something can, out. You can wow. override them occasionally. Wow. But you try not to work that. You try to always create uh, something that works for everybody mm. um, because they're in an impossible situation. And if it was up to them, they just keep them in a box all the time. That's the way they think. But they know that certain things have to be done. So, um, yeah, it was interesting. And the, and the Secret Service, man, they were like, they were such like studs. I mean, they, <laughs> literally. Well, you Literally, would think that they would they have to be the They best go to the, the bar, whatever there. hotel bar they're at, and they're downstairs. Girls are just like, I'm a secret salesman. Oh, they really? Oh, my gosh. Uh, you yeah, think that they wouldn't be allowed stuff. to do that? Uh, yeah, I think they would be yeah, like, you know, like they're CIA uh, or something. Just like, just flout it, it. Oh, that's funny. Gosh. What, so, I, I got to turn the... Uh, they keep interrupting me. What, what is wrong? Is it my, my message that's on? No, FaceTime is shut down. The kids are trying to get through? Yeah, I'm going to turn off. Just my take a, take the call if you need to. If they call back, oh. it's fine. No, 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 no. <laughs> sound like okay, my I dad. Facetime off, fine. so I don't think that's going to work. All right. Anyway, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so uh, yeah, I did that. Then I I really didn't like the people that I worked with. So um, it's really weird. I have the message off, and it's still killing me. They are, you know, when my kids want something and need something, they just right don't now. Stop. Yeah. Um, so let me just, you can witness this. Uh, I'm going to send a text back to him saying, I'm in the middle of a live interview, period. Can you patiently sit back for another hour, please? 
by the way, I wouldn't say it so nicely if I wasn't on live. Well, I appreciate that. Because like, YouTube doesn't like swearing. Stick white-ass down, boy. <laughs> Anyways, um, so uh, I got a little tired of that uh, and tired of those people, and I decided that that's not something I wanted to do. Perhaps I want to do something like writing. And um, so I kind of ventured into that kind of realm of things. And um, I was working at a magazine in New York called Interview Magazine, uh, which is a magazine ran by Andy, well, founded by Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol was not there when I was there. And then I, I ended up uh, getting fired from that job, um, which was, to me, devastating. And I got fired for some really interesting reasons, which is, one, probably wasn't very good at what I did. Um, so there's always that, but I worked for an art director and there were, as everybody was screaming and yelling all the time, screaming and yelling, there was drama, drama, drama. Now I had just come, you know, my last job was working for the most powerful man in the world. And what was kind of creepy is that nobody ever yelled. Everybody was like, uh, yeah, um, we're going to go through your uh, taxes to make sure you didn't cheat and of course, that sends shivers down your spine. But yeah. they never raise their voice. They never raise their voice. Now I'm in a magazine. They think they're so important, and they're screaming and yelling in crisis. And I think they could just read on my face that I didn't totally respect them, that I thought they were a little ridiculous. And I think that that led that that ended up getting me fired. So uh, did they know way, your background I, though? I mean, did they know that you just come off of working for the most? They most... care less. Oh, okay. They don't care. They don't okay. care. If anything, by the way, he was a Republican and they clearly weren't. So in their mind, there was residue that they right. didn't like. They didn't realize my job's just organizational. Right. Uh, Has nothing to do with there. the party. Nobody's yeah. even wanting my opinion if I had the opinion they wanted. But um, so it was purely organizational. Nonetheless. I'm fired. I'm in New York and I've got this apartment and I'm pretty nervous about how I'm going to pay rent. And um, my neighbor was an actor and he was always like having a good time. You know, he had a Harley Davidson and everything just seemed so fun and easy for him. And I was like, what do you do? And he said, I'm an actor. And I, I didn't even know what that really meant to be honest with you. And I said, well, so like, what do you do? And he said, well, for me, for my, I basically, I do commercials and blah, 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 blah. And I get paid a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, you should try it. And I said, well, that's interesting, but I am, I'm between jobs. Maybe I should try that. Um, so I, I, but I was shy. I was really shy. Like the, not shy on a one-to-one -one basis, but in front right. of groups, I just did not want ever to be seen. And so um, I didn't, I was terrified by the idea of this. And so I just thought, well, look, for no other reason, maybe it'll get me over that. Uh, I went to his agent, and I had to read a monologue and I thought it was terrible and, and um, it probably was. But she said, oh, it's really interesting. You have a certain quality. You're not trained. You need to train, but you have a quality. So I went to the neighborhood playhouse where, um, you know, it was really, it's a good school, good training. And um, I gave it a shot and I got lucky. I came to LA and I sort of applied certain things. And I said, I'm going to give myself like, I don't know, eight to 12 months, you know, and if I'm not really getting traction after that time, then I'm going to have to veer into a different direction. 
because I really gave myself a limited amount of time. But I also knew that at that age, that's the age you want to try things. You know, you're pretty, you know, I was in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, yeah, 25, 26, something like that. And um, so I, I just got lucky and I started doing commercials and my big, well, you say it was a break. It's an initial break, which was, there was a guy who shot a series of Pepsi commercials with Cindy Crawford. And um, he put me in like seven commercials back to back. So I was able to get my SAG card. I was able to get all that stuff. And then it started rolling. And once people go, oh, he's, he's in demand for these people, then they hire you for that. And then pretty soon you're working and then they give you some speaking parts and it, it starts to slowly unravel. I should say unfold. Um, it and it then, snowballs. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I started getting some shots at, at some TV shows um, and I started doing some stuff, but the real break came with a mini series for NBC called uh, family album, which was written by Daniel Steele. And back then mini series were huge. They were like a big deal. They were the big Epic that people invested in back then. And this was supposed to go up against the world series. They had to have alternative programming to the world series that year. The world series actually ended up not happening because they went on strike. What year is so- this? I, I don't even eighties nineties. Uh, no, this is nineties. Okay. But, um, it ended up being a big hit and, um, it was a, you know, the character I got, I don't know, for whatever reasons, people liked it. And, um, it suddenly everything changed. Literally. I, I could get pretty much any appointment I want. I was on a short list to get cast wow. for various shows. And so, you know, it just started happening. And I ended up doing whew, a lot. And I, I did something like 12 or 13 network pilots. And so when Stargate came along, a lot of people don't realize this, but like I had done a lot of work before that. And it was like my 13th or 14th pilot, Stargate. For that season? It was like my 13th or 14th time. Total. I'd, yeah. Wow, and and okay. I was like, look. Um, and the 12 before and, and 13 had not aired. That, well, but this was different because they said this is picked up already for a season right. and it may be, it's probably picked up for two. And I said, I like that idea. I've got kids. I'm tired of doing these pilots. The good ones don't get picked up anyways. Uh, let's do something that's like a bird in the basket here. So uh, it ended up being a great decision. Were you in Vancouver at that point or was it a move for the family? Oh, no. I've never been in Vancouver except for that show. Okay. I've been at I've lived in LA the whole time. Okay. And that was that was difficult. So. Oh, so you had a so you had a place for yourself while you were up there. Initially, I moved them up there. I think the first year, um, and then my uh, wife at the time was pregnant with our third child, and w- she wanted to be in LA because she needed to get amniocentesis done because she has a genetic predisposition towards certain things and they actually wouldn't do them in Canada. So you can't really travel when you get one of those. Um, So finally I just, I bought a house in LA and they live down there and I travel back every weekend for four years. Man. Yeah. It was pretty grind. You know, everybody goes, Oh, I wish I was the star of a show. And then finally you, you're or the star of a show and you're working hours that are pretty, pretty intense. And then getting on a plane the minute you're done and flying home for like 36 hours and coming back. So that was, 
it, it required a certain level of discipline that I've never really had to have about storing my energy and saving my energy. I was having to like literally anytime I got a chance to sleep, even if it was for like 15 minutes, I'd just go into my trailer and go, take it. And, oh, Absolutely. Man, it was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, who, Joe, who were your heroes? Who, who's most responsible for making you the man you are? Is it family? Is it someone that you've met on your journey? I grew up in a like weirdly uh, non-entertainment environment. Like there was nobody that we knew who was in Hollywood. Um, it was, so it was free of any of that stuff. Um, my dad was in politics for a long time, but I, I have to give credit to my dad. Um, he, he was an older guy. It was, my, it was my stepdad. I grew up with my mom and my stepdad. And a lot of people don't know this, but my um, my stepdad and my mom married when I think I was like five or something. And he changed my name to his last name. So the name I was actually born with was Joe Dunnigan. Now, going from Dunnigan to Flanagan, I don't think anybody even noticed it. It's an Irish thing, isn't it? I <laughs> it think was it's Irish. so Irish. Yeah. <laughs> I went from one Irish name to another one. Um, but um, my stepdad probably had the biggest influence on me. Um, and, uh, he was, he's a pretty smart guy, you know? Um, he went to, um, MIT and then fought in the war, Wow! came back, graduated from Princeton and then, uh, went to Harvard business school. And so he was a really well-educated guy, pretty interesting, pretty smart. And he, this was the second half of his life. My mom was his third marriage. And so, and he said, God, I wish I had met your mom earlier. I could have saved some time, but he, um, it was his last marriage and they stayed married the rest of his life. And um, he was an interesting fellow and he ha was pretty old school. And so we didn't have a lot of television. Mm. We had a lot of manual labor. Um, and he had a very, very clear sense of what was right and wrong. Um, and he was, uh, uh, not an easy guy. Sometimes he's pretty challenging and he would every, we had dinner every night together at a dinner table and he would ask you questions about what's happening in the world. And he'd expect you to know the answer. And if you didn't, he'd kind of cook you a little, he'd be like, well, why don't you know your job is to have an opinion. Yeah. It's not okay to not have an opinion it's not okay. Your job is to pay attention and have an opinion. And then I will challenge you on your opinion. And if your information is more interesting than mine, then maybe I'll change my opinion. So you had to be on guard sometimes. It was really interesting. You actually had to be on your toes. Uh, it, was, it, it was not personal, which was good. Um, but you learned how to debate issues pretty passionately uh but be able to walk away from it not being personally mm. like you know feeling like you've been trespassed so that was interesting and i think it it, it, it made a big difference it made a big difference and I, I i realized that when i went away to school i went away to boarding school and college and stuff there was a part of me that was more developed than most of the kids and it was a conversational quality and my capacity to carry on a conversation 
at a relatively high level. Um, and I could tell the kids who grew up around adults and who didn't grow up around adults. Um, and I tried desperately to raise my kids in the same kind of environment. It's not that easy. Um, but, um, you know, so he had an, he had an influence on me, you know, and, and maybe even more so after he passed away, because I like think about all the things he said. Um, and, and one example I want to give, this is interesting. I was in college at university of Colorado Boulder and we were paying out of state tuition. We had family that lived in Colorado. It was very easy for me to get their address and get in-state tuition, which is a massive reduction in the cost of tuition. And I said, look, we can save ourselves all this money. And he said, um, no, 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 that, that's not okay. Because the people who come in from out of state, they pay more money so the kids in state who don't have as much money can afford to go to school. You know, it showed the way he thought about things. And it was something that some people would look at today and be like, wow, you're a fool. You're just a fool. Like, those are ethics that just don't mean anything. Those are, yeah. those are just dumb. Yeah, you why don't spent, you take advantage? Yeah, there's you, there's an in there. Dumb. Yeah. You're just dumb. You're not doing what everybody else is doing. And he just didn't believe in that. He So to me, that was a, a pretty powerful, it had a lot of resonance, which was you do the right thing because it's the right thing, not because you're going to get a reward for it. And it's not the, the mentality today. It's wrong. Only if you get caught those type of things. Um, and no, he wasn't perfect. I'm not saying he was some guy you could stick on a pedestal who hadn't made big mistakes in his life. Of course he had, but these were like the larger macro ethical concerns about your place in society and his view of things. And it occurred to me that his experience of fighting in like World War II and seeing the large tableau of America is what altered his political opinion. So he knew that the, the situation had to be fundamentally fair. And there was a moderation to everything he did when it came to politics or something. He knew that you had to give people a shot. And once that goes, the whole system falls apart. So I think he would be really upset by what's happening today where people feel kind of hopeless and they don't feel like they're getting a fair shot and the rich are only getting richer. And so, uh, and he was a Republican. I'd be really interested to see like what his feeling would be with Donald Trump. I'm, I'm pretty sure he would dislike him immensely and wonder what happened to his party. But that type of stuff had a big influence on me because I'm looking at things today and I'm thinking, nobody's thinking about your larger part. They're only thinking about your thing. The only thing about how it affects me. We're all connected. I mean, it's well, it's remarkable the way Donald Trump talked about not wearing a mask. He goes, no, I mean, look, I'm fine. I'm, I'm away from these people. Like, yeah, but that's only half of the equation. How, how do you affect other people? And sure enough, he infected a lot of people. And so this mentality that how am I affected? What is in it for me? It's just only half the equation. And so, yeah, he had a big influence on me. And, and so it, it, it were guys like him. I was a history major. So there's a lot of people historically that I like. You know, I look at Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, JFK, 
I, I, you know, the, the power to inspire people and make them be constructive members of society is a incredible quality to have. And so I admire those people, people who've gone out there and done things. I, I really admire Bill Gates um, and not for his technical expertise, because I don't know. And there's a lot of questions about what potentially what, what dubious ethics were, were going on to find my, it found the company Microsoft. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't want to get into that because I don't know much about that. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking at a guy who has so much money so much money, more money than some governments have. And he is out there analyzing situations and looking at primary causes. One guy that had a huge influence on me was a Jesuit priest. And he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, intelligence is the ability to find primary causes. I thought that's a remarkably interesting way of describing intelligence. A lot of us run around and we get confused by symptoms. So, for example, even Donald Trump, we say he, he's the cause of pro- he's not the cause of problems. He's a symptom. There's a deeper cause going on of why we're at where we are, and the ability to find primary causes is really, to me, the sign of somebody who's thoughtful. And he's looking at like what the biggest threats are to mankind, and he knows for children, you know, starvation isn't the the biggest uh, threat to children and you know yet the big charity balls are like feed the children and everything else he knew that diarrhea was a diarrhea just doesn't have the same ring to it when you're doing a black tie mm. <laughs> charity thing <laughs> the diarrhea ball but he knows that diarrhea is it and you he gets he goes right to that primary cause i think that he is a genuinely interesting guy who his his impact outside of Microsoft is, is extraordinary. And it's actually probably going to be a, um, a model that potentially rich and powerful people can follow. Um, and if we only apply the same analytics to problems in our government that he applies to problems, I think we'd be in better shape. So I look at there him, are other people that influence me too. And I look at Elon Musk. And Elon Musk is another fascinating guy. What I like about him is I think he really genuinely doesn't give a shit. (laughs) He really doesn't. He's kind of like, I'm going to smoke weed on this show. I don't care. Joe Rogan. Uh, (laughs) You know, and I kind of like, yeah, cool. I like that, you know, because you can become so hollowed out by your investors and your advertisers that you're no longer the person that you were. But the truth is the person he is, is a, is a maverick. He, he needs that freedom in order to get to where he needs to get. Mm-hmm. So, and who would have guessed that, who would have guessed 10 years ago that Tesla would be bigger than General Motors? That, that too. And I'm, uh, I will be there the day that he sends the first manned flight to Mars. So whenever that's going to be, because if anyone's going to do it, I think it's going to be I might be, be on that flight. Who knows? <laughs> I wouldn't mind way, having Colonel Shepard out there. Ticket. Uh, one-way tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Had you seen Stargate before uh, auditioning? What were your initial impressions of the franchise? Are you a sci-fi okay, fan? I did not. Okay. Interestingly enough, and this is my mission, I didn't watch really any science fiction television. And in fact, I didn't really watch any television. 
And, and this was a weakness of mine. Um, and I think I approached Hollywood with a kind of like this false snobbery, um, which is, this is kind of it's a joke, all right? Even if I make, even when I'm successful as an actor, like what difference does it make? It's, I'm just an actor. And then I really began to respect it and respect the craft. And then suddenly I became really interested and, and, um, and I realized it's like, wow, this is really, the world needs its storytellers, you know, like the yeah. value of storytelling is so incredible. And I mean, and I really have tremendous respect for the whole storytelling apparatus. And I love that the, 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 it is, it's a cooperative, you know, it's not like writing or painting. It's a cooperative. You have people in the art department, the visit effects department, you know, the writers, the, 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 the gaffs, the grips, the directors, the DPs. It's an incredible co-op cooperation. And you end up with a product that is like been contributed to by so many different people and they all have a distinct mark on it and they all have their own particular value. So on that, I started watching more and more and it really did help. Um, is this after you got the role? No. So this, this is what happened. So when Stargate came along, um, I immediately, my first thought was like, well, I can't really do that. I don't see myself being the right person for this. But yeah, I had in my mind Star Trek. I had not watched Stargate. And I was told by my manager, they said, no, this is not that show. The show has like a sense of humor. It's self-deprecating. It's kind of a wink of the eye adventure at the same time. And you can probably do whatever you want with the characters. Just do something, see what they like, see if they like it. And I said, oh, well, in that case. And then I reread the script in a completely different way. And I'm so glad he said that. Because like when I read it, I was like, mm, I don't know. And so I went in with a very different, I had a specific thing in mind. I went and they liked it and I did it. And so it worked out and it was, it was remarkably simple. It was one of the easiest castings I've ever done. It was like, went in red next day offer done. When it's, when it's right, it's right. You know, there, there's just those circumstances where someone comes in and they click. Christopher judge had the exact same experience. He, oh, really? he walked into the room, Brad and Jonathan were in there. He said lines and they were like, okay, Teal, moving on. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> they well, also had trouble good. finding Tilk, but still, when well, you got it, the same you got thing. It. Apparently, they had gone through everybody and could not find the role of um, of this character. And it was remarkable how many big names they had come in to to, to read for this role. So, um, yeah, Ben Browder, I think, came in as well. So did he? Yeah, did he read for this. Maybe he was he considered did. for Shepard. Oh, I'm yeah, pretty sure. I, I'm amazed at how many people have come up to me and told me that they read for my part, you know, it's pretty interesting. And <laughs> apparently I didn't realize how competitive it was to get that. Um, so man, maybe that's good that I didn't know. Yeah, maybe. But, um, but um, then the, the next question after I got the role was how the hell could you fill the role and choose of Jack O'Neill? And I was like, who's Jack O'Neill? <laughs> I literally didn't know who it was. I, when I say I was ignorant, I was genuinely ignorant. And 
<laughs> and so I was like, they're like, he's the star of FG1. You are riding his coattails. I said, oh, well, good. Well, thank I Will you personally thank him for me? Um, I did not watch it because I knew that if I watched it, I it might affect the way I wanted to do the character. And I wanted to at least get one or two episodes in the can and establish the character before I did that. You wanted to provide and, a fresh interpretation. Well, yeah. And I didn't realize, you know, how big our SG-1 was and how many followers there were. I was, again, naive to that. And so when um, the question came up just consistently, it was a single most asked question. How are you going to be like Jack O'Neill or how are you going to be unlike Jack O'Neill or like the whole thing was in comparison to Jack O'Neill. And after the first episode air, I was never asked that again. So I feel like that's like a major success because then when I did start watching, I, I was, I had so much fun watching it. I loved what Rick did. I mean, Rick was so unlike anything else out there incongruous and idiosyncratic and I was like, that could have affected me, maybe. Yeah. And and that's his deal, and I love it. And our deal was our deal. And it's really interesting because there is a different tone to our show than the other show. And Martin Wood, who directed a lot of the episodes, he said, I look at SG-1 like Superman and Atlantis like Batman. You know, there was a different vibe to it. Um and yet it's still part of the same kind of universe. mythology. Yeah. So, and, and I would love to, and, and I have to say, Rick, it was hilarious. I loved, I loved ribbing those guys next door at SG1. We filmed, you know, they had their stage, we had our stage and they were kind of next, next to each other in the same building. And, you know, for some reason they didn't have air conditioning and we did. And I'd walk over there and I'd be like, God, it's so hot in here. Oh, must be miserable. I think I'm going to go back to my air conditioned studio. And so it was just fun to do that. And, um, and so, but I also realized like my gratitude toward SG one is it was immense because I've never done a show before where we quite literally, there was a built in audience and they had us fly down. We did the pilot, the pilot, broke all these cable records at the time. I think it was the most watched cable. It was indeed. That's true. Yeah. And so when that happened, you know, all of a sudden people start making phone calls and they're talking to you and everything else. But we go down to Comic-Con. I didn't even quite know what Comic-Con yeah, was. San Diego, the, the yeah, big and, one. And I said, why are you flying down Comic-Con? Like literally this was a Saturday. Our show had aired the night before. I said, don't we need a year or two to build an audience and everything else? It seems like a little premature. And, and we, they, they, I don't even know anything. Cause you go through these back entrances under the hotels and into this thing. And then you just hear they're introducing you and you walk onto stage and boom, I walk out and Holy crap. It is. I don't know. 4,000 people I, fit. I, in, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Ballroom 20. Three and 5,000 people. This yes. Correct. Standing room only standing ovation it's incredible and i just was like oh my god we are on a ride <laughs> we are on a ride and by the way that was the same experience jason momoa had when he was joined because he came the second year and he had never really been on anything that had been watched 
or been in front of a group that was that big. And he was like me, he was pretty shy about these things. And I just remember him saying, um, I am not talking. So do me a favor and answer all my questions for me. Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> and I remember that. And I was like, I go, you're going to get used to this. Trust yeah. me. And it's amazing. Yeah. It was just like me at the beginning. And then look at him doing skits on Saturday night live. It's a remarkable arc. If, if, if I may be so bold, when we started talking with you, you were in your first season and the answers, you're going to kill me for saying this, but your answers were often yes and no. You know, you were very, were yeah, you were very, very clipped and very specific and you got to the point and there was, there was minimal embellishment and coming back year after year, we watched you learn the interview process and move forward uh, in terms of exploring, verbally exploring the aspects right. of the character and production and everything else that went into it with people who were coming yeah. to set and getting yeah. in your space and getting yeah. in your face, you know, yeah. when you were trying to yeah. memorize your next lines for the next yeah. scene, you know, it's intrusive. Well, what, was, what was particularly hard for me, and it took me a number of years to, to realize that the, that first year was really taxing because although I had done a lot of shows and I had been a regular on TV series, I'd never been the star or the, the lead, I should say, because mm. it's not fair to say I'm the star of that show because it's an ensemble. It's an cast. ensemble cast. Yeah. But I'm the lead of this show. I'm number one on the call sheet, which means they, they're going to lean on me the most and they're going to put me in the most stuff and I'm working the most hours. And I think that along with, having and moving my family up and it was difficult. It was, it was, it was, I was short on sleep all the time and it was really taxing and it was very difficult. So at the time I met Hugh Jackman up there in Vancouver, our kids started school together one day uh, yeah, and I didn't even recognize who he was. We were just saying, you know, yeah. I heard his accent and stuff. We just started talking. It was our kid's first day of school ever. They'd never been to school. So this is their first day of school. And you know, a parent's first day dropping a kid off of school is like, Oh my God, oh my God, this is really nerve wracking. And so we were kind of like fetching together. Like, Oh my God, I hope they're okay. And <laughs> right. Almost like two mothers, leaving right? the nest, you know, and then we, we became friends and he was shooting X-Men or yeah, I think it was X-Men. And I started talking to him. I said, you know, this isn't fair. You shoot two or three pages a day. I shoot 12 to 14 pages a day. I have more work. I have less rest time. I have less time to work on my material. We spend less time like shooting the material. And, and it doesn't seem fair. Well, the truth is, no, they're working just as hard. They just spend more time on a particular thing. But he said, uh, I said, I don't even have time to work out. You know, I have to get picked up at 6 a.m. You know, if I'm lucky, I get home by 9 p.m. And, you know, it's really it's tiring. And he said, you have to get up and work out. I said, yeah. But then you I wake up. You, you're asking me to wake up at 430 in the morning and work out. He said, yes. You're better off working out and being a little tired than not working out and still being tired. And all of a sudden, I did that for one year. And it changed everything. Changed everything. Wow. My ability 
to talk to journalists, my ability just to be present on set, the energy I had, my overall just mood uh, was it was very different. I was finally getting sleep, and I was just better mentally and physically. And I and that was what I had to do to handle those type of hours. And it really helped because when I started flying back and forth between L.A. and New York, you know, that's that's what kept me going. And and so it was, you know, he taught me a lot about that. So was it difficult on the kids not give it up for Wolverine? Absolutely for Wolverine. Um, was it difficult on the kids not being there all the time? Or have they handled it well? Have, have, as adults, have they been like, you know, Dad, I appreciate your sacrifice. You know, how, how have they handled still, it? It's still pre-FaceTime. This still is true. This is phone so, call only. It, you know, kids don't really want to be on speakerphone. They don't get it. And, they don't, and so what was happening is that in your head, when you're a parent, you're thinking, you know, this is a beautiful thing. I picture myself sitting at the edge of the bed when it's nighttime and they're going to bed and they're like, daddy, what is God? Or daddy, I had a rough day at school. Somebody pushed me. And then you give them a big life lesson and you do the thing. That's what you pick. You have these visualizations about what you're going to be like as a parent. Suddenly this stuff is happening, but I'm not there. And I'm trying to talk to them on the phone about it. And I was like, this is really difficult because my, impact on these kids is so minimalized by the distance and everything else it was difficult and yet those are the sacrifices we make as parents to 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 help our families so when people are in difficult jobs you know i get it i get it but i it it is a lesson that when this pandemic hit i said to myself well i am spending quality time with my kids that I might not otherwise be having right now. And so I try to look at it that way because pretty soon they're too old. They're not going to need you and need to talk to you about all their problems and stuff. So I try to look at it that way, but that was the most difficult part of it. And, and, you know, Jason and I also, Jason helped me a lot. Cause so to Jason, the studio got me a two bedroom suite upstairs on this hotel. Yeah. You, you lived together for a while. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. We weren't supposed to, but he came in. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. He was like, uh, Joji, dude, can I stay in your room until I find a place? I'm like, yeah, no problem. You know, one week goes by two weeks goes by. Now it's like a month. (laughs) And I know that the Buffalo skins and everything else aren't leaving. My place looks like a cave now, but that's okay. Because the truth is, I love the company. And I just love him. He's an awesome guy. And we were able to keep each other pretty sane. And it really made a difference having that companionship. Uh, and he was there. I mean, Christ, there were, we had, I had a kid that I couldn't get to when he was born. Uh, my father died while I was on set working with Jason. I mean, having him as my buddy and living together got me through a lot of that. And, Ah. um, and then he and I would fly down to LA almost every weekend together and he'd see his family. I'd see my family. And, you know, you realize that there's no way you're getting through life alone. Like you need friends and family and you got to lean on them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so I just had never been in a situation where I had to lean on people um, emotionally and for the first time in my life. And I was like, God, I'm lucky. I got good friends. So, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. And yeah. it must be 
just kind of jarring just watching his stratospheric stratospheric success. I mean, you must be just tickled pink for him. You know, this his success right, the, the, has been tremendous it is, and well earned. It's not like watching one of my own kids succeed. It's that. Yeah. It's that fulfilling. Uh, especially knowing him from the beginning uh, and especially knowing that he's a solid guy that really deserves everything and he's not going to get disjointed by the fame. Um, if he was getting disjointed by it, like I'd be the first person to tell him. Slap he's him down. Yeah. Here. Come on. Yeah, he, I, get real. Yeah, he, he's got his feet on the ground. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it is exciting. It's very exciting. And I love watching it. It's, it's just awesome. And it, by the way, it comes with a price. It's really difficult. So this quarantine, he, he was like, oh, I get to spend some time with my family. I mean, he's booked out like two or three years in advance. The idea of spending some time with his family was just not on the books. And so he, the kids would have to get flown to his location. It wasn't easy. And, and I saw him a number of times on various sets. You know, I visited him up in Vancouver Island and down in Australia and everything else. It's, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's my experience being the lead on this show multiplied by about a hundred. That's how much pressure is put on you. You're, you're now a moneymaker. That's you're true. Big money for people. Yeah. Studios. Yeah. And I mean, his movie passed a billion dollars. Your movie passed a billion dollars. You're in a different level of Hollywood. So that's almost like dangerous to even think about, you know, <laughs> Can you imagine the, the insurance policies that are taken out on you and everything. I mean, it, for a normal yeah. show, but now like this, you know, especially with yeah. as physical as he is. And I mean, he's, he's yeah. that way anyway, you know, he's, that's just how he's oriented, but the stuff that he does and gets to do just, it's yeah, it's gotta be very rewarding to watch that. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is years ago in one of our interviews, you talked about the relationship between Stargate, the circle, and the hero's journey. Ah. And I've always thought about this speech that you gave. Because I, I, I recently read I Hero of a Thousand Faces. Like a <laughs> no, it didn't. It, it came off as, as eye-opening. And I used it. I front-loaded it as the beginning of a new fan series that I did called The Phenomenon, where people were talking about how Stargate had influenced their lives for the better. Can you tell us about um, Shepard and the hero's journey and the circle and the, 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 the cycle of the hero's journey as yeah. it relates to Stargate? Because yeah. the circle, so, you said, is the most universal symbol in the yeah, world. Yeah, it is. Interestingly enough, I mean, Joseph Campbell came along and, and decided to kind of synthesize all these mythologies and religions and find out what the patterns were. What were the common themes throughout all religions and all mythologies um, and it was very often the same exact paradigm, which is a hero starts in a place, there's a problem, and he has to leave home, and he has to go out into this world, and he is transformed by his experience, and he comes back to share what he's learned back home, and that enriches life at home. Um, and almost it's hard to come up with any books movies or films that might be different right i mean they all pretty much are about a journey sometimes they're very interior sometimes they're you know physical i mean it's but it is the same basic paradigm and the circle was in fact the, the most common physical 
symbol in all religions and mythologies. So you kind of come and you're thinking about this and you're like, wow, there's a certain genius to the Stargate mythology. They really hit all these sweet spots. And I don't think it's a coincidence um, that Stargate is very popular across the world. These are themes that every culture can relate to. I mean, you can go to Africa and find massive Stargate fan bases. And they were themes in their tribes, you know, that so all cultures look outwards, you know, and dream of space travel or what, what space has to offer, what space means. It's the big unknown and everything yeah, what's else. beyond so, your borders. Right. And then you add in this one aspect is that it is a, in our show, it's a, it's a physical journey. So it's an adventure. So that really helps us uh, in terms of translating into different cultures. I think there's a reason why certain genres do well across cultural boundaries and action is a big one of them. And we are in fact, an action film. We are science fiction action, but we're an action film and action is easily watchable by anyone and so uh i what i found interesting is that i've heard from almost every type of fan and one of them was a, like blind people love the show deaf people love the show uh, it's and you're like well interesting you know like blind people what they love is they the in their mind the voices are so distinct yeah they can know exactly what's going on, yeah. exactly who's talking. And they have a very clear picture of what's going on. I mean, I can't tell you, I've signed a lot of walking canes. I've autographed a lot of walking canes and, and, and so forth. And I've talked to mothers and stuff who have introduced me to their kids who are deaf. And they're like, you know, and they're like, they love this show. And that's another thing. How many shows are so cross-generational? I've seen grandparents show up with their children and their grandkids who are all fans of the show. That's really hard to find today. There's not a lot of shows. They hit very specific demos, but there's very few shows that grandparents want to watch that their grandkids like and vice versa. So that, to me, that was amazing. Like that was a remarkable triumph without watering it down, you know? And so I was kind of proud of that. Yeah. And I'm, just feel like, God, every actor should have the satisfaction of doing work and sending it out there and it being responded to positively and you're getting feedback for it. You get to go to a convention, you get to meet these people and they get to tell you because sometimes I just think, God, my life is so ridiculous. I'm in a spaceship made of plywood and styrofoam. This is so ridiculous, right? You know, what do I do? I mean, People, there are people who actually do things. I'm not, I don't even think I'm doing anything. And then somebody comes along and they says, you know, it's really interesting. I was in like a stage three cancer and I was in the hospital for like three months. And I watched your show back to back and it helped me get through it. I hear that story so much about people that are, re 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 you know, recovering from something that have been sick. They're in a tough part of their lives and the show helped. And then I say, wow, I am really proud that I am able to contribute in any way, shape, and form to somebody's life being better. That's awesome. 
that you is are awesome. exhausting yourself day in, day out. Yeah. You're away from your kids. You're away from your wife. Yeah. You are dealing with uh, 150 people on set depending on you. And you're wearing that on your a blast. Sh- you Don't are forget. having a blast. I am no, having abso- a blast. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but at the same time, you are creating content that changes right. people's lives right. for the better and that matters to them. Right. And the, how many people get that gift? You know, I don't know, but I'd say this. I have some friends that are, are more successful than me as actors that that still don't have that. It's really interesting. They may have a better career. They may be making more money. They may have been done, done more projects, but they don't have that fan base and the fan feedback that you get specifically from science fiction. And that is something I'm like, man, but you don't have a science fiction fan base. That's <laughs> the greatest thing in the world. They'll follow you anywhere. They'll follow you to hell yeah. and back. So, yeah. Joe, so, I, I want to switch to fan questions here. Um, yeah. And I have a lot to talk about with you about Shepard and about the journey of that character over uh, over five years. I would love to have you back in a few months to discuss that further. Um Guys, I appreciate you in the audience waiting, and I cannot get to every one of these seven pages of questions. I'm going to go through some highlights. Thank you all for submitting. Joe, we have 320 people watching right now. Nice. You broke my records, my friend. Yeah. So (laughs) we're in the second week, and we're already at like 1,300 subscribers. Now i got to make a plug for my show. Yes, please do that right now. I'm doing every day my... I'm on day number 10 of my 14-day hotel quarantine in Toronto. I'm live streaming every day at 2 p.m. Eastern time. On Instagram? On Instagram, sorry. Okay. Yes, okay. And what are, what's the alias? Uh, Joe Flanagan Official. Joe Flanagan Instagram. Official. F-L-A-N-I, right there on the screen, folks. Yeah, Joe Flanagan Official. Official. Perfect. It has a little blue check mark. <laughs> yes. Claire Cowan says, as you can't get your normal coffee, would you ever consider drinking tea? That's how we start off the fan questions here. Well, the caffeine, uh, because I, this is what I said, you know, I'll I'll clarify. She clearly watched one of my live streams and I said to everybody, I said, you know, a lot of people are sitting there talking about, Oh, it's rough. You know, the actors in a nice hotel room for 14 days. And I said, well, listen, you try drinking a flat white with almond milk for a year and then suddenly you have to drink regular coffee it's tough it's rough first world problems I'm, I'm, but I'm no seriously suffer. i am experiencing true adversity here. <laughs> so the tea is um the tea yeah i could do tea. you know maybe now that i'm going to take up meditation i will get into tea drinking so we'll see but i don't know a good slug of like oily coffee Kind of gets me going. Joseph Steinbrenner. Joseph Steinbrenner. Oh, I'm thinking George. I was like, wait a second. Yeah. Isn't he yeah. gone? Who yeah. does? Uh, who do you wish? Um, and I, I was going to ask you this, so I'm glad a, a fan gets to ask it. Who do you, uh, or if anyone, do you wish that uh, that Shepard hooked up with? Or do you think he, he was good <laughs> flying solo? Well, can I ask you why I didn't hook up with anybody? Well, no, I occasionally have to have a love interest. Right, but, you know, for a while it was Elizabeth, and then you know, like, like. Uh, then we had people like um, 
Jill on the show. And right, exactly. I don't remember the name of her character. But. Yeah, Chayasar the Ancient uh, in uh, season one. Right, and then they were just like one off. Then you had things. Laren and Travelers. You know, there was something there for a while. Um, but yeah. I am convinced that I would go in and unsolicited into the writer's room and pitch them story ideas, much to their like chagrin. Um, and they were patient about it for a couple of years until I realized that maybe they weren't crazy about the idea. But I was often, I always thought it was funny to pay homage to other science fiction characters like Captain Kirk. So I was like, we got to get all Kirk about this. I got to go to a planet and they got a bunch of six foot tall Amazonian women and they need help and I help them. And, and they're like, yeah, Joe, that's a great idea. Okay, we'll look into that. Well, you need it back on set. Hey, you did Epiphany, <laughs> you know? There was a little yeah. bit of romance in Epiphany yeah. in season two. That was a great show. And that was but a spiritual show for Shepard, if there ever was one, in my opinion. Well, let me just tell you, there's actually an interesting dynamic that a lot of people don't understand, that, that uh, the consummation of a relationship on a show is a very different thing than the tension of a potential consummation of a relationship. So moonlighting for example they never really got together we don't think they did we don't know they did maybe they did maybe they didn't we kind of feel like they got together we kind of feel like they got together yeah and so but it's the tension it's of unrequited relationships kind of like you know it's like it's not there's tension and the tension is that it it wants to happen but it's not happening that's really what you need to establish. So it's less about having the relationship and more about setting up the circumstances where the audience says, I want it to happen. So, um, you know, I was uh, under the, it was, I think, originally meant to be me and Weir. And it sure felt like that. Yeah. Well, what, what I think is I, you know, to be honest with you, it's nothing that Tori was doing, I, I, I honestly think it was the dynamics of the show. Like we kind of ended up becoming two separate shows in one. Those that stayed in the studio and shot in the, in the, the Gatrium. Yeah. Those, yeah. And then those of us who were out in the field. Yeah. And so uh, and we weren't working together very much. And so they have to, they had to, they had to change that and figure that out. So um, yeah. I, and then again, I think my character, you know, less about his backstory than almost any other character there, which was very interesting. You'll learn a lot about McGillian or Beckett and McKay and a lot of episodes geared toward their backstories, even Taylor's um, and even um, Ronan's, but you don't really get too much backstory. Uh, The one backstory episode I helped write, I can't remember the name of it. I want to say it was Outcast. I think that that's correct because um, we go home and and <laughs> Ronan's with you. He's like, remember I told you about my ex-wife? Yeah. Well, here she comes. <laughs> so absolutely. And we met his his brother Dave, and uh, it had just uh, his father had just passed. I'm assuming your father at heart by season four had already passed as well. So there may have been some some um, life inspiring story. What season was Outcast? Outcast uh, season was season four, and that aired oh, okay. in February of two thousand eight. Well, the story is we're at my dad's funeral. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, let me see here. I had it up. There we go. 
I had originally written that differently. Really? Yeah, and and they went a different direction. I, when I say I helped write it, like it, it's co-written. Yeah, Alan Brad, McCullough. Yeah, Brad. Oh, yeah, but Brad also decides where the story's going. Of course. I I like the idea of establishing a father figure. And I wanted to establish some kind of father figure, like a George C. Scott type of guy, um, that was a you know significant presence. Um, and uh, they just went a different direction. So. I'd love to explore that later on in the show. Um, if you were given the choice, would you like to come back to Stargate in both an acting role and or behind the camera? I suspect yeah. Shepard's a general now. Well, it's interesting because, and by the way, what I have to do is, okay, I have to plug this in. <laughs> oh, we're running out of juice? I am running out of juice. Let sure. Me plug it in really fast. Absolutely. And while he's doing that, I'm going to ask you to contribute to our show. So if you like Stargate and want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal if you click the like button, if you're enjoying the show. It really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will help the show grow its audience. It's already happening. We're already at like 1,300 subscribers. So thank you, everyone. But please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to click and if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops, and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute changes. And this is key to if you're planning on watching live. And back to Joe Flanagan. We are good. So, Perfect. What, what, what were we talking about? <laughs> How, would you like to return as Shepard one day? Oh, yeah. So Okay, so here's the deal. Um, I knew that I really wanted to come off this show with some directing experience. So I uh, was able to renegotiate a little. And I said that I, I wanted to shoot two or three episodes per season for the remaining seasons. Now, what was really frustrating is that they came up with a reason every year why I couldn't do it. And the idea and the reasons would shift from you're too busy shooting the episode to prep for the following episode. Or the next excuse would be, well, you're an American and we only have Canadian directors. We bring one American director in, then the entire tax structure changes and it's very expensive. And I each time would have an answer to that. Like, look, I will give up my acting fee, which will more than cover any directing penalty tax, whatever it is we have. And, and I, I really wanted to do this. I was really frustrated that they didn't let us do that. They did not want to open that can to any actors. They had done it on Stargate SG-1. And to me, it's one of the greatest things you can offer an actor. And I say that because actors very often make very good directors. Yeah, look at Amanda. They She's know, amazing. They know, they know how to direct. Yeah, not, it's not a coincidence. She's a good director. She knows what acting is like. She knows all these things. She's been thousands of hours on sets, tens of thousands of hours we've set on set. So it should be a natural fit. And a lot of times in the tradition of Hollywood is that if you have a show and it's doing pretty well and you're on the air for a while and the actor wants to direct, you figure out how to make that happen. Um, and a, there's a lot of actors that have just now just direct. So that was one of my great frustrations is not being able to do that. Um, and if I went back, I'd really want to try to get that 
that in the in the can and get it done. And, and you know, hey, listen, Jason's doing that. Jason's directing. They're, they might be commercials and sometimes they're films and stuff, but he's directing his own stuff. It's he still experience. That, well, the truth is your your um, your life as an actor is much more um, capricious. It's 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 complicated. You don't have control of anything. You are at the whim of this complex interdependent web of people and everything has to come together at the same time. When you are directing, it's a more stable life. There's more work, it's more steady. And, um, you know, it's not a bad way as you grow older to, you know, contribute. So. Absolutely. And I hope you get that opportunity. So if there's a chance for, you know, more Stargate in the future, Brad's, Brad's hoping to get a fourth series off, off the ground. You know, I would hit him up. Yeah. Kinvara Devonshire. What? <laughs> All right. Joe and I are going to be like winking at one another here. Why does Shepard wear the wristband? <laughs> okay. I just can't say why. You know, it's like I can't reveal everything about this show. There are certain things that have to stay secret. You know how much your first wristband went for at PropWorks? How much? Like two grand. Shut up. I couldn't believe it. Wow. It was absolutely crazy. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. You know? And you know what? Um, a lot of people come up to me at conventions and say, can you sign this? This was yours. And I can tell. I, if probably, it's mine I probably sold it. Yeah. I can tell whether it's mine or not. Yeah. But PropWorks has sold a number of things that are not mine. I know they're really? not. Really? I know they're not mine. Now, they may still be marked as Shepard. Uh, okay. so there's nothing I wore, but or, or you know, so Interesting. I can tell. I still have, you know, I still have the two watches, um, or maybe just one. I can't remember if I have one. I think I might have lost one in the fire, but I had the watches, um, and I always was like, I'm saving these to sell for a charity or something, and I, I yet to do it. So this is the only thing I have left. So Okay. Yeah, that was my next uh, question. Someone was about to ask, did you, uh, Ashley Smith, did you keep any props from the show? So you have your own watches. Okay. Yeah. Well, I didn't keep that many props. Uh, and unlike some other actors. Jason. I've got your, your, your uh, ice cream cone phaser up here from Aurora. Oh, that's and hilarious. down here I've got, um, you can barely see it, but it's uh, one of your Game Boys next to the Stormtrooper. Oh, my helmet. God. I like your so. blinking Enterprise. Oh, thank you. Today. Yeah, a friend of Very mine made that cool. for me. Very cool. How much, uh, the Fred, how much improv or ablib were you allowed on set? We know of a few, like, you came up with Chewy, which is perfect. Right. Okay, so it was interesting. So, basically, if we got the... the um, dialogue in the can then then you end up with a tag they sometimes would write a tag like okay got it and that's supposed to be the last line but then what you do is you leave a little pause so they got a cut place and then i'd say so uh make that happen rodney and that's the last line and then he'd be like way to beat and he'd be like okay like, why are you yelling at me and i'd be like I'm not yelling at you. Like you're just sensitive. And then we'd better and and you know banter back and forth. And sometimes they'd keep it, and sometimes they wouldn't. But it was a way of you know you you have to establish the dialogue. One thing that's tricky, a lot of people don't understand, is that um, when you shoot, you shoot minimum of your master, and then cover cover. 
okay, so I have to get a shot of both of us, and then I have to get uh, 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 coverage of me and coverage of you, and there's actually medium shots in between. But you can't switch the dialogue. Because if I say something, you know, like, David, you're just, you know, like, get up. And then it goes to you, and you change it. You know what I'm saying? It you have to be, be consistent from shot to shot because they're editing it later together. So you don't have a lot of room just, you know, logistically, it's not easy to ad lib. Now, having said that, there are other there are ways to do it, and some TV shows have done it. Friday Night's Lights – they started something that was kind of interesting. I thought it would take over a lot of TV shows. They built big sets. They started shooting four cameras simultaneously. Now they're doing not they're doing everything all at once. They're doing their master, their medium shots, and their coverage. And no matter what happens, they have it covered. Because it's all and in that, one go. Be one sequence, boom, it's in the can. You do another sequence, it's in the can. Then they can decide which one they like. But there's nothing I can throw at the other actor that he doesn't have the opportunity to respond to. Because what you don't want to do is create one performance for your coverage and another performance for the other guy's coverage and have that emotional mismatch or even verbal mismatch. So, you know, that's one way of doing it. Yeah, you can tell when things are you can tell when things are poorly edited in in certain movies or TV shows. It's like, well, not only is is the person with their back to the camera, you can see their mouth moving in a different time. But the reaction sometimes is a little different. And if it doesn't work, it can really not work. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Amongst actors, there is a, a, a singular, singular test of professionalism. And that singular test is how you do reading off camera for the other actor. And if you don't deliver and give them the same performance you did for your coverage, it's really considered unprofessional. It's really considered not cool. And so part of the I'm here to support you and you're here to support me is I'm going to read off camera and give you everything you need, um, even though I'm not on camera right now. And so, you know, you learn a lot about people. And, you know, let me tell you, there's a lot of younger actors who just don't understand the levels of professionalism. And invariably, the older actors that we had, and especially the more successful, we're the ones the most dedicated to that aspect of things. It doesn't matter. I mean, I was doing a TV show with James Gardner, and um, it only lasted for a year. And, he, you know, this guy is old. He's been beaten to hell by all the TV shows he's done. It'll be midnight. And they're like, you know, you can go home. I'm like, you can go home. And he's like, no, I'm going to read off camera for you. I'm here for you. Yeah. And so that's considered to be... You know, and it's not like you have to do that every time. There are times you actually don't need the guy and you, you can say, go ahead. But I mean, it's considered to be a, a very important part of your professionalism. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Was uh, do you wish there had been more Atlantis SG-1 crossovers? You appeared in uh, season 10 of SG-1. Do you wish that there had been more of that? Yeah, I think I'm owed some residual checks for that. <laughs> Um, I will say this. Um, I, I was a little wary of this and here's what I was wary about. I was wary that, that I wanted Stargate Atlantis to be Stargate Atlantis. I didn't want it to be SG2. That's fair. I was, I was a little sensitive to that. And so I made my, my opinion known that I thought 
we shouldn't do that many crossovers. And I was even nervous when Amanda came on the show because, um, and not because of Amanda, I mean, she's amazing. It wasn't at all about qualifications or anything. It was like, well, are we creating something with just a bunch of interchangeable parts? Is this simply an extension of that show? Or is this show kind of stand on its own? And, you know, truth be told, you can achieve both. But I was a little nervous about it at first. I didn't want to make it just SG2. And I personally liked the tone we were striking uh, in our show, which I think was a little darker than SG1. It's more action. Yeah. But you also had, I I think there was a little bit more humor in in some respects as well. In some cases. I mean, you didn't have Rick, but... Well, there is one thing I wanted to do, um, and <laughs> maybe I'm saying I might be saying a little too much by saying this, but what the hell? It's years from it was years ago, but there was some frustration among some of the writers that Rick wasn't uh, gauging um, the danger of the plot lines sometimes to the extent the writers wanted it. In other words, he was like too playful and too glib, and not like being like crap this is serious. We're going to die. And I thought to myself, well, part of the genius is, is, you know, his ability to kind of be idiosyncratic in those situations. But I was very sensitive to that. So what I was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to take the, the stakes of each show very seriously. And I'm also going to be a smart ass. Right. You can do both of the, you can do both of those things. One doesn't take away from the other. And so um, I tried, you know, to hit that. And so I think there was a little bit of a difference there about the the seriousness of our plot lines and the stakes of our plot lines. Sometimes I feel like they felt a little heavier sometimes. I don't know. But But that's that's what you were going for. Well, it was, it was. And I felt that was like the respectful thing to do. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to like make light of the fact that the planet just blew up and everybody died. (laughs) Right. I mean, (laughs) some of the, of the villains in in many respects, I mean, nothing can stop us from raining our terror upon you. They're comic book villains in in many respects, you know, Uh, you have to have that ultimate evil every once in a while. Nowadays, it's, it's a little bit more common to, spend more time with the villain and and really find out what makes them tick and find out what parts of them are kind of like you, which is kind of insidious and scary. Um, but yeah, SG-1 well, tonally was I want just... to say something. It's really interesting to me. And I'm not saying at all that we were the ones, the first people to strike this balance because we weren't the first people to strike this balance. But in the world of science fiction... I feel we were one of the first people to strike the balance. That is now the predominant tone of like guardians of the galaxy and all these things. Yeah. Like they are doing what we did. Yeah. They they are are. goofing off and totally fun, and the stakes are serious. And I think once again, I don't think we're responsible for it, but we were doing this before they were doing it. And, the truth is that was the dividing line in my mind between Star Trek, which is orthodox science fiction television. And, and serious. We, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I Take everything seriously. very much to make sure that I'm, you know, doing this to the audience. Like, I know we're having fun. You know, uh, I wanted everybody to know that this was a self-deprecating 
there, there was a level of self-deprecation involved. And um, you know, there was a lot of discussion about that. Well, um, it's a, a tightrope walk. The first, before the first episode aired, there was very deep concern among some powers to be that I was not taking the, the, the show seriously enough and that it was not good in that regard. And I, I fought back on that and I said, look, that was my choice. Yeah. That was, you knew what I, I wanted to do with the character. And if you didn't like that, you could have cast a different way, but I've done that's enough true. pilots to know that I'm sticking to my guns on this one. And that's the character I want. That's the tone I want to strike because if I take everything seriously, I think it's going to be earnest and painful. So it's, it's interesting that you, that you bring that up. I I'm thinking back to when the pilot aired, and you sit back in the chair and the chair takes off and the solar system appears on the screen or above you. And you say, did I do that? And my mother had walked into the room and she said, oh, he's like the other guy. And I was like, <laughs> um, I mean, they're definitely striking the, the self-deprecating humor yeah. and the, the kind of a little bit of breaking the fourth wall, you know, yeah. being aware of that. Yes, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, a TV yeah. show and we're having a good time. But I was, as soon as she said that, I was like, that's not fair, mom. <laughs> Give him a chance. But once again, look at you got the parents and the children watching the show together. That's certainly true. And my dad and I, we, we, we've have, it's, you discussing your relationship with your father. I, I heard very similar. Uh, I, I felt a lot of that as well. I, I, it's my, the most common thing true. that I get told is uh, my dad and I used to watch this. My yeah. mom and I used to watch it and everything else. And I do, you know, I do these cameo things. And by the way, here's another plug. Yeah. If you come to cameo, I'm donating proceeds to rock the vote. So try to join me at cameo. But the most common cameo I give is this is for my dad. We watched this show. We watched all 100 episodes together, and they're some of the greatest memories I've ever had. Can you give a shout out to him? Yes, see, that's so, great. You're helping families connect. And mine, a, a Vietnam veteran and Huey helicopter pilot, a helicopter pilot of 40 years, was really cool on Shepard, let me tell you. So, <laughs> Jonas says, uh, What do you think uh, John's doing right now? Is he a general? Is he still out there on missions? I'm going to say he he hasn't gone up the ranks. And I'm saying that because I don't think he wants to go up the ranks. Doesn't want to fly a desk. If you go up the ranks too far, you don't get to go in the field. That's true. So I think that he purposely keeps himself from being promoted and he stays at a level where he can still stay on the field. And, you know, that's that's who he is. He's 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 a guy on the streets, not in the office. This is, I, I can definitely see that. Um, how is being, Becky S, how is being the lead different than being um, a, it's just, just, she says cast member. I don't, I don't think that that's her intent. Well, I think what um, she means is what's it like being a lead versus a supporting character? Yeah. Bearing the weight of the uh, show basically with your first, the first name is to come up is you. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that, that, the, um, uh, there's more pressure. Um, they pretty much like any other business, um, everybody's setting each other up to get the blame (laughs) and then everybody's trying to take all the credit. Uh, so, uh, and if the show does well, it's great. Um, if the show is not doing well, there's a lot of pressure. Um, 
having said that, all you can do is pay attention to what you have in front of you. And then there's elements that are out of your control. If they take you off the air for a while and there's a hiatus on, on the on the broadcast schedule, those are out of your controls. They change your broadcast times. Uh, those are out of your controls. A lot of the storylines are out of your control. Um, so you can only do what, what what's in your control. When you're a supporting actor, there's a certain freedom that it's kind of amazing. So I had played the supporting actor in a couple different shows. And I remember that one specifically with James Gardner, where it's about the U.S. Supreme Court. And he's the chief justice and I'm his clerk. And it started with not that much dialogue. So I had to learn how to be present and make my presence known without speaking. So I learned how to really listen in a scene. You know, and I, I mastered every like listening little thing like, hmm, yeah. <laughs> all of it. It's great training for an actor. Because you really do. And, and if you give something and, and they can tell you're really present and you do something interesting, it makes the cut even if you don't have the dialogue. That's really good training for every actor. Because what a lot of people do is like, my lines, my lines, my lines. And then off. They're, yeah. They're, my lines, my lines. And a lot of times, sometimes the more dialogue you have, there's a potential for not listening to the other actor. Because uh, you're kind of like, oh my you're God. working on the next one. Got to get now. When's my right. cue? When's my cue? And so the act of really listening, without as much dialogue, there's it's great training, and um, I think it's it's really good. And so it's it's a fine balance between not popping and taking a scene, which you have to be careful from, and still being interesting enough to be a cutaway. So. Um, I would prefer being a lead. <laughs> I hear you. Now, and you have to I think like about being a lead. <laughs> you have to think about the people who are in the editing room. You know, you want to give them something to play with. You want to ha- yeah. don't want them to be like, oh, here's a scene with yeah. Flanagan. Oh my god, what yeah. am I gonna? And by do? the way, you know, God bless those guys oh, because yeah. you know I'm sick of myself all the time. I can't imagine being stuck looking at me all day long for five years. I mean, I don't even want to know what those guys say because they're watch that. He's going to do that thing. He always does. <laughs> <laughs> they've seen it all. So that's, but that's their job. Put up with this. It's incredible. And so God bless them. Too I mean, qu- I, I don't think there's a single person that you would end up really liking after five years of staring at them and trying to cut them together for hundreds of hours. Sick of them. That, yeah, I I can't say I I would blame them. Two more questions. I'm going to let you go. Ethereal Nico. What's your favorite adult beverage? Adult beverage. Um, Mescal margarita. That's where Mm -hmm. I'm at. And I just want to tell you that. So last night, um, Jason FaceTimes me. And he's like in a velvet robe and he's like, hey, what's up, baby? What's up? He's got a beard. Oh and he's like, God. Nah, nah, nah. And he's got a couple of friends that are quarantined with him, a couple of motorcycles in the background, some drums. He's like, oh, man, we're having a party over here, man. Must suck to be over there in the hotel room. So I broke down. I, I had a nervous breakdown and I made a mescal margarita for myself. And you know what? I did feel better after that. So Absolutely. That's my adult beverage. You've got to give yourself a little comfort food every now and then, even if it's a right? comfort beverage. So good for you. And, you know, last but not least, I think it's fitting that Jack O'Neill asks this. Hey, Joe, what was it like to work with Meredith? What was it like to work with Meredith? I'm confused. Really? Yeah. 
Dr. Meredith Rodney McKay. Oh, Joe. Oh, my God. Oh, I thought you, like, first I was like, oh, my God, you're talking about a guest star named Meredith. Nope. And I'm so sorry that it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. You know, I forget that his middle name is a woman's name. His middle name is Rodney. I think it's fitting. Um, what was it like to work with Rodney? Okay, so I have so much to say about this. <laughs> Go ahead. First of all, it was like when Rodney and I, or when David and I started working together, something kind of clicked right away and it was not unlike the road shows with bob hope and fred astaire there was just this easy banter and we were so different that it was really funny and it was really fun to work with and um, david is a, a really talented actor um and so it, i have to lay down the context really fast I'm flying back between LA and Vancouver quite a bit. And um, I find myself occasionally sitting with um, Rick on the plane. And I remember sitting next to him and I said, so Rick, do you have any advice, you know, now that I'm doing this show? And he's like, you know, he can be a little gruff. And he was like, advice, like kind of advice. I, I don't have any advice. I was like, wow, okay. Okay, MacGyver, my God, MacGyver's a little grumpy, right? I didn't realize it, it wasn't about that at all. And, I, and like 30 minutes later, he goes, oh, don't do the gobbledygook. And I was like, okay, what is the gobbledygook? He said, you know the gobbledygook. The gobbledygook is all the sci-fi techie language about this and this and that that you never understand. And you're sitting there explaining the whole episode. If you do it good and if you do it well, they will keep giving it to you and they will keep giving you more and more and more. And if you're not good at it, somebody else has to do it. Now, this was probably the best advice I got. So I was given some stuff, and I purposely sabotaged it. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I, think, I think Hewlett is probably much better equipped to handle this type of dialogue than I am. I, I, I'm, like, I'm not the smart guy. I don't want to be the smart guy. He was in Mensa, or he could have been in Mensa. Yeah, well, exactly. The right. whole thing. I was like, look at it's like that's not cool. Uh, I fly I helicopters. Like subterranean smart. And so anyways, uh, sure enough, Hewlett was saddled with everything. And it was hilarious. I have seen Hewlett laugh and cry and curl into fetal positions and freak out. The amount of work he had to do cracked me up. Now, it stressed him out. And I was l literally laughing all the time, like, I helped create these conditions for you. And so... <laughs> And thank you for entertainment for the rest of us. And yeah, so uh, uh, working with him was was a joy. And actually, I kind of thinking to myself, I have no idea how that show would be with without him. I mean, he's just it's like it's like peanut butter and jelly is like just a jelly sandwich. Good? No, I I can't picture yeah the show without those two characters. Yeah, he's the, uh, he is in, in many respects the the technical propulsion that moves the story along. He mentions the thing of the MacGuffin of this and that that allows yes. you to go. That's crazy. All right, or let's like, go. Let's go fight them say? off. <laughs> right, exactly. And I remember. Uh, yeah, and and by the way, you know, as opposed to science fiction uh, movies, movies are very big productions, and you can show a planet blowing up. Okay, you got the money to do it. Well, we don't quite have that money, so we have to explain the planet blew up for the most part. And so science fiction television, I think, is something every actor should do because it's very difficult. 
Mm. Um, you're having to take a lot of material that's really complicated and address and say it in some way. You're not going to lose people's attention. Correct. And David was David was able to do that like masterfully. We were, and I knew I couldn't. I knew I. That's couldn't. fair. So I was like, "You do it." And yeah. we were on set for Trinity in season two, and it's the episode where he blows up three fourths of a solar system. And we went to his trailer to interview him, and he had no voice. And it was like, <laughs> man, he's like, how about next week we do an episode where Rodney yeah. loses his voice and he's <laughs> saying it like this because he can't talk. I was like, you poor guy. You yeah. know, he must have had at least 50% of the dialogue. As fast as he moved through it, he had to. Easy. He made Michael Easy. Shanks look like he was standing still. Easy. So, Joe? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Shanks did the same thing, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So I want to thank Rick for really keeping me out of five years of pain and misery. <laughs> so on Instagram, you are available at Joe Flanagan official two o'clock yes. Eastern time. Is it every yes. day right now? Every day till the end of quarantine. So four and more. I'll probably, I'll probably do it every day until I leave Toronto. Um, but it'll be day number 11 tomorrow out of 14. I think. No. Yeah. I look at I'm confused. Yeah, no, it's cool. I can tell you right now, I've been I've been peeking into the chat and people have been saying they've been loving this thing. So in whatever form that you continue to take that, these guys are in. And cool. we've we've been going for over an hour and a half now, and we've got yeah. three hundred and thirty seven viewers right now. And what was the other one you mentioned? Uh where where you're donating the proceeds to rock the vote? Oh, uh it's cameo.com. You know, cameo is this online autograph or videograph thing that celebrities do now that you can no longer meet people um you do personalized videograms to people and uh the, there's a percentage going to rock the vote so it's a good cause awesome well yeah i appreciate you plugging that and taking you know pushing that toward a good cause this good. has meant so much to me to have you, you on well and- we always said all of us cast members You've been one of the great journalists uh, for us from the very beginning. Really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy to deal with, and, and, and you ask good questions. I'm just worried about the batteries on your Enterprise thing. I'm wondering if they're going to run out. The nacelles, my friend, are about to fall off. That thing has been sitting there for five years, and when I leave, the house gets up to 120 degrees. They are going. So, yeah. Joe, Be best back. of luck on C. I All hope right, to have you back again uh, in 2021. Let's talk about Shepard one way or the other. Thank you so much, sir. It's been a treat. Thank you. Be well. Take care, David. Bye-bye. Bye. Folks, that was Joe Flanagan, Major and Colonel John Shepard on Stargate Atlantis. Thank you again, Joe, for joining us. This is a, uh, was a fantastic time, and thank you, everyone, for, for being involved in the conversation. I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to get to uh, everyone's questions. I tried to get uh, questions from people who hadn't had a chance to, to talk last time, uh, so this was absolutely uh, tremendous. Uh, before I let you go... If you like what you've seen in this episode, I would really appreciate it if you'd click that like button because YouTube's algorithm is very particular. And if you do like the show, it's going to help us do more and grow the audience more and get wonderful people like Joe uh, back in the saddle 
for us to talk about uh, Stargate and about life and everything else that's uh, that's important and going on right now, but also to talk about you know the the specific aspects of this uh, and and uh, minutia of this franchise, which is in my opinion the or my intent of the show. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. If you plan to watch live, I recommend giving the bell icon a click so you'll be the first to know of any schedule changes, which will happen all the time. Now, bear in mind, clips from this live stream, this live stream will be appearing uh, in the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels over the course of the next week of special moments and clips from this show. So Joe is our first guest today. And we are going to be bringing in Brad Ellis and Wesley Walker from Wyvern or Wyvern Gaming. I'm not exactly sure on the pronunciation, but they're going to correct me. The Stargate SG-1 role-playing game Kickstarter is in full swing. And I've lost count at what um, the, uh, the stretch goal is right now. So that is astounding. And thank you all for contributing to that. I wrote the foreword in that myself. I am very proud of being invited to do that, and it's going to be a terrific tabletop game. If you want to stick around for our channel, we're going to be starting up that discussion in about 15 minutes to explore the upcoming SG-1 role-playing game. I've got uh, nothing else more for you guys here, so I'm going to get uh, the next show ready to go. Hope you're joining us for that one. I hope you enjoyed the program with Joe, and uh, you know what? We're going to see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner. Co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com.